0: This episode is brought to you in partnership with Nestle Carnation. Carnation has been delivering sweet and creamy deliciousness to desserts nationwide for over 120 years. Whether you're making or baking, topping or mixing, their products make desserts easier than ever. Incredibly simple and quick to use. You can make so many amazing treats with Carnation, from cheesecakes to banoffee pie, fudge, caramel and toffee. A staple ingredient in every keen cook's cupboard. Head to their website, www.carnation.co.uk, for lots more inspiration. And there's even a free downloadable recipe book waiting for you there, too. Thank you very much to Nestle Carnation. Hi, I'm Margie Nomura, and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes Podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven desert island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. The question is, what would you choose as your last meal? Hi, I hope you're all very well. I'm very excited today as I've just had the most amazing brand agree to do a giveaway with the Dinner Tonight newsletter. Just firming up the details as we speak but this is so good. It's the kind of giveaway I actually want to enter myself but I need to check what the rules would be on that. So if you haven't yet signed up this is a good time to do it. You can do it by going to the website desertislandishes.co. It's free for everyone every other week. And then if you pay just 76p a week, you get recipes every single week and also lots more planned. I was going to say sorry for talking about the newsletter again, but I'm actually not sorry because I'm so excited about it. I've never written a cookbook or actually I have, but only as a ghostwriter. And this is like writing a serialized cookbook and to then know that people are cooking the recipe that week It's honestly the best feeling. And if you do choose to support it as a paid member, please do know that that does not go unnoticed. It honestly makes my day. Every time I get one of those notifications, it makes such a difference to me. And I promise I'm working really, really hard to make sure you get lots of amazing recipes and really good value for money. On with today, we have a lovely episode for you with the brilliant Zena, who I would like to think is my friend in real life, but we'll have to ask her if she agrees. She came round to my house and we drank coffee and chatted all about her seven desert island dishes. I'm so lucky that I get to speak to so many brilliant people. I've never not learned something and I hope it's the same for you listening too. Zena is doing amazing things. Her food is gorgeous. She's absolutely incredible at creating food videos that the kind that you just want to dive into. And I'm constantly asking her for advice and she's always so generous and she's just a really great person. And you know from listening to this podcast that I enjoy nothing more than seeing really good things happen to good people. So I really hope you enjoy today's episode. My guest today is Zena Kamgang. Xena describes herself as a passionate home chef, a recipe creator, and food enthusiast. She's been passionate about cooking since she was a young girl, and she has always loved experimenting with food and playing around with different ingredients, flavors, and textures. Before going full time as a freelance recipe creator, she worked for a charity and ran their anti-human trafficking initiative, worked for a food media company as head of ops before working at Mob Kitchen, the food media platform. Zena burst onto the food creator scene when she appeared on Jamie Oliver's Cookbook Challenge. And since then, her career has gone from strength to strength. She has since appeared on Lorraine, has garnered a huge online following, and this seems to be just the start. Welcome, (laughs) Zena.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Wow, what an introduction.
0: (laughs) It's so lovely to have you on Desert Island Dishes. And if you listen to the podcast, you will know that at the end, we are going to cast you off to a desert island. How does that make you feel? I'm ready. Let's yeah, <laughs> are you good in your own company? Are you a resourceful kind of person? I am great in my own company. Are you possibly
1: too good? <laughs> Is I, there such a thing? I mean, I thrive being alone. Okay, that, that's a bit strong. <laughs> I um, I like my own company. I used to be a massive extrovert, and I feel like I now have retained like the social skills of an extrovert, but I very much enjoy my own
0: company. So okay, I'm that's ready. interesting. Yeah. So you used to be an extrovert. Like, when did that change?
1: I went through a huge sort of life change about five, six years ago where my faith became super important to me. Uh, so I'm a Christian. And that kind of changed a little bit how I live my life. I stopped going out as much, stopped mm. drinking, yada, yada, yada. Not that everyone needs to. But I think because I spent so much of my time doing so much, when I sort of just sat back and relaxed, I was like, oh, I actually kind of like peace. Yeah. <laughs> I like quiet. I like being in my own company. And I, I love seeing people, but my comfort zone is very much my... A little bubble.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting to think that that can change over time, which Mm. obviously now you've said that makes complete sense that that can happen. You cook for a living and are obviously very passionate about food and what you do. But I wondered, what does food mean to you?
1: I think, I mean, it sounds really cheesy when you say it, but genuinely for me, food is love. Like Mm. it's how I show love. It's how I express love. I also love food. Like everything about it just is love and is joy. Like Mm. from the actual act of cooking, like the process of chopping and frying and roasting, whatever it is, it's just so, I don't know, it just brings me so much joy and it makes me feel at peace. But then equally when it becomes like a shared moment. So if I'm cooking for you, it's because I love you. People Mm. always ask me like, do do you ever want a restaurant in the future? And I've never really thought about that because for me, food is always about connecting with the people that I do Mm. know. And there is, this element of like cooking for strangers—not that it's not great, but it's not quite as special. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Long story short, food is love.
0: Yeah. And talking about the different love languages. Is mm. that also how you feel love? Like if someone cooked for you, is that a big thing for you?
1: So they always say that you have like love language, like how you express and how you receive. Yeah. Food is how I show love, but I feel nothing. In <laughs> cook for me. I'm like, oh, thank you. But like, it doesn't do that much. That's so interesting. Is, <laughs> I don't know why. It's not that I'm like, I'm grateful,
0: but that's not my love
1: language it's
0: because their food just isn't as good as yours no
1: like it could be the, it could be the best food and I'll be really grateful but like I'm more of like a words of affirmation girl like get, okay. give me like a really cute message and I'll ball but okay. give me like the best short rib and I'll be like thanks
0: yeah isn't that <laughs> I think it's so interesting how the two aren't the same like mm. how you show is not the same as how it's you like, feel yeah it's very interesting so let's dive straight into the first Desert Island dish. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood.
1: Okay, so this one, this one's quite easy. So I would describe it as a chicken in tomato sauce. But really, mm. it's a Nigerian style chicken stew, which Ooh. is basically like tomatoes, onions, bell peppers. There's some curry powder there, some thyme for seasoning. Um, if you're brave enough and you want to raise your kids that Niger you'll put some scotch bonnet. But like my mum was pretty... Uh, she went pretty light on the spice oh, when we were younger. She? But I mean, well, when I say younger, below the age of five. Once okay. we hit five, we were,
0: we <laughs> well, were, guess we're off. <laughs>
1: um, and then we always had it with just white rice and peas. It is the first dish my mum taught me to make. And so mm. it's the dish I associate the most with my
0: childhood. Mm. And so now are you amazing with spice? I mean, I
1: would say that by, I mean, it depends by whose standard. Okay. By sort of average standards, I'm great with spice. Okay. By Nigerian standards, I'm okay with spice.
0: Oh, okay. So is Nigerian food really super spicy? I don't think I knew that.
1: It's really hot. They just love heat, so they'll add stuff. So like, for example, like one of Nigeria's most famous dishes is jollof rice, which Mm. is like a rice cooked in like a tomato sauce. And, like, you'll get recipes that tell you to put one scotch bonnet, but I know people who put, like, six. I'm convinced my mum doesn't have taste buds anymore because okay. her <laughs> level of spice is just so hot.
0: Who needs taste buds? <laughs>
1: They're <overrated>.
0: <laughs> <laughs> So do you think you do quite well in those sort of online challenges? Where is it the, the Dorito challenge? Do you think you do pretty well?
1: So <laughs> I, I thought I'd do well in those kinds of challenges, but then for my... I think it was my 24th birthday yeah. my sister got me the hot ones hot sauces like the like yeah. YouTube show and I filmed it never released it but um and I was like yeah great fine it got to eight nine ten and like I was a different woman like I was there was stuff coming up out of all parts of me I was profusely sweating I was crying as I was crying my tears were on fire so my face was on fire everything and I was like okay fine maybe I'm not the, like, spiced. Oh I think.
0: God. Your <laughs> tears being on fire is quite... painful, is
1: painful, <laughs> painful. Oh my God. painful. Yeah.
0: What's the answer, milk?
1: So, oh, God. The answer, I tried milk, but yeah. milk, it's too liquid, it passes. So I had to get oh. a tub of ice cream and just put my mouth in it. And oh I, just, I just stayed in the ice cream for about 22 minutes
0: right Zena. well we need to see this footage <laughs> there's no way it's you're ne- leaving it's here it's never never it's on a hard drive no. That never... that's viral content there <laughs> at my expense <laughs> the best kind <laughs> so you started cooking at a really young age around the age of seven experimenting in the kitchen and cooking for your family you do have sisters do they also feel the same way about food because I'm so interested in the idea mm-hmm. of like nature versus nurture
1: I think so. I've got two younger sisters. And while we all share a love of food, like eating food, I think I'm the only one that got the cooking gene. Okay.
0: Um,
1: My youngest sister, so she's actually just moved out to America. Um, Shout out to her. She's super smart. She's doing an MBA at Stanford. Oh, wow. Um, And she's like, I haven't cooked in like years because of you. And now it's really stressful. I'm not enjoying it. This is so long. Uh, And then my middle sister, I'd say she enjoys it a little bit more. But again, they don't have that sort of like, yeah, cook. Yeah. It's more like okay, I'll cook cuz I, I have to. I
0: wonder if they would have done if you hadn't shown an interest and that kind of became your Fair. thing at home.
1: Or yeah. maybe. So my sisters and I were all really different. So I'm the eldest, maybe the bossiest. <laughs> but then I feel like if they really like if they liked it, there was yeah. no like there was, was never like that. there was space for that. Like yeah. that would have always been fine. I think I almost cuz when I was a kid I loved doing it together. Like my my favorite things we would like cook together. Um, I grew up in the 90s. We had those, I don't know if anyone remembers, those like Tom and Jerry cupcake things. Oh, they with like the paper. With like the paper little stickers. Mm. So we would do that together and that was really fun. Um, and so I used to love cooking with them, but then I hit sort of like 12 and I was like, no, nah, this is... <laughs> This my
0: thing. you said that you started cooking at the age of seven but you actually got good at cooking when you were 17 where did you find this is quite literally what i've said verbatim where did you find this then i take my research very seriously but i wondered reading that how do you define good at cooking
1: Um, I define good at cooking by making meals that people actually enjoy.
0: Okay, I think I made the ten years before it was inedible. (laughs) I mean, no,
1: there would be. I'd have moments, right? Like I, I, I do this thing, kind of like how I'm, I am with music, where like I find a song and I like rinse it. I'm obsessed, and then I kind of get bored of it. I had the same thing when I was younger. So I'd master like one or two dishes, and I'd run that for like four months. So like. My friend's mom taught me to make a vanilla soufflé. We had a vanilla soufflé for a year. My <laughs> uncle taught me how to make mussels. We had mussels for a year. So like the, the one things, the one thing I knew how to do, I did well. But yeah. it was the experimenting where it got a little bit more dicey. Yeah. And I think also because I wasn't cooking consistently. I think you have to do something consistently anyway to get good. Uh, and it wasn't until I was sort of 16 that I started cooking consistently because I started cooking um, in school and for my friends and every day. And that's where. Yeah. I think the skills started to flourish.
0: Definitely. And despite this obvious love of food and cooking, you didn't immediately go into the world of cooking. I think you've said that it was a passion, but it was never a goal to turn it into a job. And I wanted to ask about that. Were you worried doing it as a job would make you less passionate about it? Or was it just not something that you ever considered doing professionally?
1: I think it was just never a professional consideration. I think growing up, I I wanted to be lots of different things. But by the time I got to sort of my late teens, I, I thought I wanted to be in finance. Okay. I was like, cool, I'll be in you th- finance. You
0: thought you wanted to be in finance or you thought that's what was expected of you?
1: No, so my parents were super chill. There was never any expectation. They were probably oh. too <laughs> kind to me. Um, it was more in terms of what I wanted for myself or what, what I thought I wanted for myself. I think because social media didn't exist, mm. the only, I guess, Korean food that I saw was either you were going to be sort of a restaurant chef, which I always knew I never wanted to be, Or you became like a Nigella or a Jamie Oliver and you had this great TV career. And I was like, I couldn't even dream that big. Um, Though saying that, that's a lie. Because when I was very, very young and I was eight, I did say I I wanted to be not the next Jamie Oliver, but better than the next Jamie Oliver, whatever that meant. But um, my mum loves to tell that story. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I just, I never thought it could be. And therefore it never was a consideration. But because it was something that I loved to do and spent so much time doing it, there was always going to be a little something on the side that was going to be dedicated to that. I just didn't know that social media would come in and fill that
0: void. I know. Void. It's changed the landscape so much. Mm. Let's pause there and talk about the second desert island dish. What's the first dish you learned to cook?
1: The first dish I learned, so I, I feel like I learned two dishes at the same time. So on the one hand, I learned my mum's chicken stew that I talked about earlier. But then on the other hand, I also learned how to make a lasagna. That ah. was like the first thing we made together. But, okay. And I say lasagna, it wasn't like a homemade lasagna. It was okay. a, like was a it? jarred bechamel. Okay. <laughs> I, I browned my own mince, like we did that. and But it was like a jarred tomato sauce. No parmesan to be seen. I think it was like cheddar or whatever it was. Um, and at the time I thought, I was like, yeah, I'm
0: great. <laughs> well, yeah, because I mean, a lasagna is a labor of love.
1: Yeah. And it's like big and impressive and it felt, great. It wasn't always great. Um, Sometimes the lasagna sheets were super crunchy and sometimes it was really liquid, but it was always a fun sort of afternoon activity. Mm.
0: And so thinking about the two dishes that you've chosen, one being very traditional British food and one being very traditional Nigerian food, was that the food that you grew up with that was just a mix of the two?
1: I think it was was definitely a mix. Um, More so... I wouldn't say we ate a lot of traditional Nigerian food other than sort of like the the chicken stew and the jollof rice. I didn't really eat more than that. Um, But on the other side, I did also didn't, grow up eating particularly like British foods like shepherd's pie or whatever like it was I know you don't
0: like shepherd's pie I don't (laughs) don't
1: believe in shepherd's pie it's because I don't like mashed potatoes I think Uh, like what they're like the most least
0: enjoyable form of potato like I don't
1: know like why would you want to eat a paste No,
0: sorry sorry like a good mashed potato is 50% butter
1: so yeah
0: but like (laughs) it's not about the potato no but
1: like given the choice between like a buttery mash or like some chips. I'm gonna go with chips, okay? Buttery mash, roast potatoes. Gonna go,
0: mm. it's a texture.
1: I like crispy, I don't like yeah,
0: Dodge. Okay, um, no, I get that, but yeah, okay. Well, it's hard to move on from that. <laughs> you've left me a bit speechless with that. But, um, you worked for a charity and ran their anti human trafficking initiative, which involved a lot of traveling and sounds like an incredible thing to do. Can you tell us a little bit about that time?
1: Yeah, so this is post South Africa, so I lived in South Africa for about like two-ish years on and off, came back to London, did my master's. And so post-master's, I was looking for a job and this sort of like kind of fell into my lap, but it was a Christian charity. uh, And they had, among the other things that they did, like they ran an orphanage and other projects, they had um, something called the Dignity Project, which was centered around anti-human trafficking, but also around um, eradicating period poverty. So- Basically, the job consisted of two main things. So the first bit was sort of running workshops in schools, in developing countries across the world. And we would, in those workshops, we would sort of teach girls about, I guess, human trafficking preventions, like signs to look out for. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of times people who are trafficked, it's not, it's not some like crazy violent thing it's by people that they know and trust and sort of look out for those signs Uh, and on the other hand we teach them about you know menstrual hygiene and we developed reusable washable period pads, which we produce in India, and then we'd sort of hand them out. So it was kind oh, wow. of like a, so I did that. And yeah, that was that was a job. And I'd take teams with me, um, we'd get volunteers. And that was also how we funded the project.
0: Amazing. And your food is so heavily influenced by traveling and by celebrating authentic food from around the world. Travel is a really important aspect of this, experiencing different cultures and seeing how they use ingredients. Was that something that started right from the beginning of your, your sort of journey into food, I guess.
1: I think so. I think by like the very nature of who I am, I am, you know, half Nigerian, half Cameroonian, grew up here in London. And there's just always this idea of celebrating flavors and foods from all over the world, but doing it in a way that like you can still honor those cultures. Mm. I think from a very sort of earlier on, not young, but... um like in my 20s, or as social media was sort of booming. I found myself getting frustrated sometimes when I used, I'd be scrolling, and I'd see something called sort of Asian salmon, and it would Mm. be like ketchup and soy sauce, and the presence of soy sauce made it Asian. And the more I sort of got frustrated, I was, I sort of asked myself, why? And yeah, just, I think that's kind of where it stemmed from, because I don't, I don't think I cook specifically authentic dishes. However, I think it's important to know where, food came from, where Mm. ingredients came from, and you can use them in any which type of way you want, but just acknowledge where they came from and just celebrate that. Mm. Credit where credit is due.
0: Yeah, because there's so much conversation now about cultural or about culture in general. Mm. And then particularly in the world of food, cultural appropriation when it comes to different dishes. But something that I've definitely noticed, I don't know if you've noticed too, but on a particular post that might be proving to be slightly controversial, someone will say, this isn't actually what you're saying it is. It's a local dish from where I grew up. And then someone else will say, actually, no, it's from where I grew up. Mm-hmm. And just connecting those dots is so interesting, the way that food travels mm-hmm. and the way people create their own dishes. And I guess it's a constant evolving process, isn't it?
1: Yeah. I mean, we, we talk about the fact that we are in like a globalized era, but mm. There has always been a degree of movement at least yeah. in
0: our sort of most
1: recent modern history yeah. um, whether it was colonialism whatever it was there was always movement and there were always different peoples and tribes and and as those sort of mixings happened yeah. food traditions that were from one place became sort of imbued in the actual culture of another place like for instance i'm going to hyderabad tomorrow in india And Hyderabadi biryani is very different to other types of biryani. And that has a lot of Persian influence because the Nawabs were there like back in the day. And like that makes it really different. So I think that there's a sense of pride you feel for Mm. like the food of your country, of your culture. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like I I get that people want to celebrate that, but there just needs to be an understanding that what might be yours is also someone else's. Mm. And that's also okay.
0: Definitely. It's so interesting. Mm. And it is a constantly evolving thing. Mm. When you travel somewhere, is it the food that you get the most excited about? 100%. yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Did you plan trips around Around food, food yeah. yeah. <laughs> like currently I'm planning a trip
1: with some of my friends to Mexico. And my only requirement is like, I need to be able to get X amount of like this kind of food, that kind of food. I wish I was more, but I'm not great in terms of like going to museums and sightseeing. Like that really doesn't do anything for me. It's all about the food. So as long as I get get that part of the trip sorted, then I'm good.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, I don't think anyone that you're going with is going to complain about that. (laughs) Sounds delicious. Let's talk about the third desert island dish. What's the best dish you've ever eaten?
1: Okay. This one like actually makes me excited. Like I, I, every time I think about it, I literally get goosebumps. So let me set the scene. I was 14. I was in Singapore with my dad. Uh, It was his best friend's 40th birthday. Um, And Singapore just has amazing food. And there was this restaurant we went to that unfortunately does no longer exist. It was called Out on the Bund. Um, And it was sort of Chinese Singaporean food. And one of the things we had was this like five course feast of like celebrating duck in all forms. And as part of this duck feast, which in and of itself was one of the best things I've ever had, They had two dishes one was like a a crispy lamb dish with like coriander garlic and these other other flavors that i i don't really know what they were but it was the best thing that has ever like entered my mouth like i have never to this day i'm now 30. this was 16 years ago like i still remember it and nothing beats that there was also on the side A really simple egg white fried rice, but it was the best fried rice I've ever had in my life.
0: I don't have the words to express how great that meal was, but that is... I'm getting a feeling of it. Do you feel like in a way it's kind of good that place doesn't exist anymore? Because if you went back, would it be the same?
1: A hundred percent. I think that if I went back, I would probably be disappointed like I've yeah. dreamed about this for 16 years like it's it's too much pressure that's too, it could never live that is food. a really long time <laughs> it was
0: it what do you think it was purely the food or was it anything to do with who you were with and the occasion or was it purely it was
1: purely the food yeah, because the I remember <laughs> it was I mean it was a great sort of Time we were celebrating my dad's best friend's fortieth. <laughs> like everyone there was quite old. I wasn't there for the people, but maybe was that there was there part for of the it. Then, you <laughs> just managed
0: to Find focus on the food. The food. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Dad. I was actually
1: just really bored. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Your big break into the world of food, I think, came with the Great Cookbook Challenge for Jamie Oliver, which was a Bake Off-style show where people were competing to pitch their idea of a cookbook and get it published. Mm-hmm. How did that come about? how did you get involved? So it was sort of, it was
1: 2021. It was, I was sort of minding my own business on summer holiday. And I got a DM saying that there's a show that they were piloting, like, we'd love for you to apply. At this point, there was no, like, it didn't have a name. They okay. also didn't have Jamie Oliver's name attached to it. So I was okay. like, nah, whatever, I've got nothing to lose. So I applied and I went through the various stages. And ironically, the application for that show, you had to sort of, in, you had to pitch your concept. And my mm. concept was all around cultural appropriation and my thoughts on that have sort of since de- developed but in in it was sort of in its infancy mm. and again i did not know that this would be a show fronted by jamie oliver so i wrote my whole oh. Oh, application no. um i cuz i talked about cultural appropriation you and talked i talked about the jack chicken i talked about the the jollof rice as oh, a jollof rice which okay. And I love Jamie Oliver. I need to say that. He, he knows this. I, I love Jamie Oliver. But the, I, that recipe, I, I remember back in the day on Twitter, it, like it kind of went, it popped off because it was, there were loads of ingredients that you wouldn't normally find. Mm. And I also brought up these rice and peas. There were a few other, yes. there are a few yeah. other ones. And so I mentioned that as a, not as sort of as a point of hate, but as a point of this is what's sort of has happened. And I think that there are different ways of doing this. Um, and then I submit my application and a week later they announced that it's a Jamie Oliver show. Oh and I was like, oh, this is great. Like <laughs> he's going to hate me. I'm not going to get on. But, um, thankfully, um, he didn't actually he read didn't. the application. Probably didn't. I think someone told <laughs> the producers told me someone told him and thankfully he found it funny. Like he's a great guy. So like there's no issue. Oh so
0: we're still good to this day. Imagine that sinking feeling where you're just like, <laughs> no. Yeah, I,
1: And he was like my biggest idol as a kid. So I was like, well, this is I just ruined that. So, yeah.
0: <laughs> this is a primetime TV show with one of the most famous chefs in the world. Were you nervous or did that side of things come easily? So, I thought I'd be really nervous. Um, but I
1: wasn't. And I think that it's because um so it the, the show was a, it was a sort of co-produced by two production companies, mm. uh, Plum Productions and then Jamie Oliver Productions. And they were so good about making everyone feel so comfortable that like there was no issue I felt like I was with people that cared like genuinely and I think that that made a big difference because I up until that point I think I hadn't really shown my face ever because I was Mm. quite scared because people on the internet really mean so it was like very much my food did all the talking um but they made it really comfortable and it's I think it's because of my experience on that show that I then applied to do mob and have become more of a personal my own social media because I was like it sort of demystified the whole thing and made it a lot less scary
0: that's interesting so when you started out you were you weren't like forwards facing and you were nervous and that's because of how the internet can be and it felt scary so you weren't scared to put your work out there Mm -hmm. but somehow putting your face to it made it scarier
1: yeah because i think that you know it's one thing if someone's like oh your chicken looks dry
0: first of all my chicken's
1: never dry so I'm good like you can say <laughs> that but I know that my chicken's not dry but then if if it becomes about you then it, it hurts more and I think yeah. I, I've now obviously developed tougher skin but back in the day like I, I wasn't ready for that so I think for the mm. first sort of I think it was two years of having my social media account I didn't show my face oh, all really? my hands it was photography oh, yes, uh, and then I sort course. of posted a picture I was like hi this is me and everyone's like oh my god wow you're you're a black woman and I was like yeah I'm I'm a black woman. Hi. (laughs)
0: Because no one had any idea.
1: And like you, you sort of, until someone shows you who they are, you I guess create a little mm. idea in your head.
0: Isn't that so interesting that mm. you can do that from photographs of food? Yeah. Like right? even with something like that, you form a picture in your mind, mm-hmm. which is such a strange thing to think about. Mm. When you say that they made you feel really comfortable with the filming and all of that, when you watched the edit, did you feel the same way? Oh gosh.
1: Watching your back was hard. And to this day, like I even like when the, well, I was so excited to do the Lorraine stuff, but I've only watched one episode. I get Have really you? cringed out watching myself. And I think. Oh, no, you were you're really good thank you the show was it was difficult to watch because i i know how emotional i got like i so it was comfortable i also cried every episode so i was I watching being like how much of my tears are we gonna show today
0: And but they were really really good. you're not really a crier oh i am oh, i pretend i'm
1: not but oh, i, I okay. cry
0: i'm like what s- kind of stuff makes you cry well i enjoy cry
1: slash emotional cry more so Ooh. like when i laugh too hard i cry all the time so i'm okay. like like a john lewis christmas advert crying like you're only humans. I'm only human so um (laughs) but I think because the show it was so great but it was also it was just a little bit surreal Jamie Oliver on the show was our mentor and for so much of it and so so much of it never made it to air like he would you know stop filming and actually just have conversations and actually help and actually build relationships with people and so I think I was just so like how is this my life that like I just kept crying I was like how Mm. like it was it wasn't that it was sad it was just like How am I
0: here? So like almost in a way quite overwhelming. Yeah. And so now would you consider Jamie Oliver a friend?
1: Yeah. Yeah. 100%. How cool is that? Yeah. Pretty cool. Great
0: guy. Zena, we're on to the most important question of the day. Okay. What is your favorite sandwich?
1: Okay. So my favorite sandwich. This varies by the season. Mm -hmm. So if you'd asked me this in the summer, it would have been a different answer. But now that I'm sort of leaning into... Comfy, cozy, hearty foods. Yeah. So it's actually inspired by an old Carluccio sandwich. I don't think they do anymore. But it's basically a, like, crispy chicken... Crispy milanese-style chicken sandwich. So you've got ciabatta, which for me is one of the best breads of all time. Black pepper mayo. So just, like, mayo with loads of black pepper. Crispy chicken milanese fillet thing. Crispy pancetta. Rocket tomatoes sandwiched in together. Crispy, crunchy, juicy salty, delicious.
0: So good. So good. I feel a bit speechless. <laughs> How often do you think you have that sandwich?
1: <laughs> so um, in the last 10 years, I've had it once. <laughs> <laughs> but
0: and it's this my is, favorite. It's <laughs> my,
1: so I don't know if you get this sometimes, you know, when you have like a favorite something, but you it's like just, it too much. No, but it's just so much work. <laughs> I did it once for a video and I had to refilm it like three times and I haven't made it since because it was so much work. Oh I wish God, they I, would just sell it again so I could have it, but I don't want to make it. For I really wasn't expecting that as an answer. That is absolutely as hilarious. Might, I say when I cry when I laugh.
0: Oh, oh. Yes, we've got evidence. You're on you've film. got evidence.
1: She does not lie.
0: <laughs> okay, so it's yeah. your favorite sandwich, and you <laughs> like it so much. You've had it once in ten years, once ever, aside from the Colucci's one. Uh, so when I was when I was like a teenager,
1: I had it every Friday. Okay, like I should have said that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I need
0: a minute. Um
1: yeah. So like well you your question was what's your favorite sandwich, no, right?
0: it? I, there's no judgment. I'm just <laughs> drilling down into the um into the full answer.
1: If you want to know no. my most eaten sandwich, mm, what's the answer to it's that? It's a grilled cheese. Mm. Cuz it's simple. Okay. I just I love a sandwich, but the idea of spending a lot of time mm. making a sandwich kind of for me defeats the point. One of the things I love about going to America is that they take sandwich culture so seriously like you can get a great sandwich yeah in the way that like i don't think you can get here except for certain specific spots like the average sandwich in the uk isn't to me as exciting as like a u.s deli style sandwich
0: yeah what's your secret to the best grilled cheese
1: um so i think my secrets aren't particularly unique so Mayo on the outside, so it gets crispy. Mayo over butter. Over butter. But I put butter inside because butter is flavor. Yep. But I just don't want my butter to burn. So okay. mayo on the outside, butter on the inside, cheese. Also, and I, um, I, I got this from Chris Morocco from Bon Appetit. Mm. If you add really, really thinly sliced or even like um, mandolin uh, shallot slices, mm. you get like a, just a little bit of like oniony goodness. Mm. So good.
0: Raw. Yeah.
1: But it's like thin enough. So because you're putting it at the top, like the heat coming through is like enough to almost steam it a little bit. So you don't get like a raw bite, mm. but it has to be super thin.
0: Mm, okay, so that's a, that's a great tip. There we go. And you said you had a summer sandwich. What is your summer sandwich <laughs> that you've had once in the last 20 years? So my years? summer <laughs> sandwich, I actually have at least, I think I just don't really eat sandwiches very much. I have it
1: twice a summer. Which, as a (laughs) non-sandwich...
0: I mean, the summer is quite short here, so that could be quite often.
1: Uh, But it's a marinated aubergine sandwich. So I roast aubergine rounds, like, quite thick, really, like, sort of hard and fast. They get really charred and, like, gooey on on the outside and gooey in the middle. Mm. And then um, I dry roast it, so no oil, no salt, no nothing. Um, And then you make a marinade with olive oil, preserved lemons, uh, basil, parsley, garlic sort of all the fun stuff with a bit of that brine toss the aubergines in there let them sit for like an hour and then you load that into a ciabatta with some tomatoes like good summer tomatoes mozzarella rocket
0: again in a ciabatta because i think ciabatta is one of the best breads yeah so good so with cooking in general do you ever feel like that that it can take a very long time and then it's gone in a matter of seconds? Or is it very sandwich specific that you feel like that?
1: I think it's sandwich specific. Okay. Some people
0: hate sort of long
1: recipes. I don't mind a long recipe. I love the act of cooking is what I love. Mm. But for whatever reason, apply it to a sandwich. And I'm like, oh, that was a lot of work for something. I think maybe I ate my sandwiches too quickly. Maybe that's
0: what it is, Anna. Yeah. I need to slow down. Slow down. Maybe if
1: I used cutlery <laughs> and like made it an experience, I
0: would have My favorite sandwich, I do once a year at least. I do appreciate a sandwich that requires cutlery because you just know it's not messing around. Mm. She's a serious (laughs) gal. I read something you said where you were talking about the more you experimented in the kitchen, the better you got. And as you improved, so did your knack for pairing flavors. And I wanted to talk about that. Because of the way cooking is viewed from the rise of social media and cooking shows and all of those things, there is this kind of expectation that you're either a good cook or you're not. Mm-hmm. And that some people think that they're a bad cook, but the reality is it's just a skill that needs honing and you need to practice.
1: Yes, I think that everyone has the ability to be a good cook. Do you think that's true? But not everyone has the ability be, to be a great cook. Mm. Okay, this is maybe controversial, but I'm gonna I'm gonna liken it to driving. Okay. I think that there are certain people who are just naturally born great drivers. And, think- <laughs> and there are others who just really aren't. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can, you know, you can all be good drivers and that you can all eventually pass your test. But some of you won't be driving as well as the Mm. others. And I think cooking's kind of like that, where like, you like any skill, the more you do it, the better you get. But I don't know, I think there's something, there has to be an innate love of food. Yeah, kind of there. And that if that doesn't exist, then like, you're never going to be great because unless you
0: love it, you're not going to try and be great. You're not going to try and learn more. You're not going to push yourself. Mm. I think I definitely would agree with that. I don't think there's such a thing as a bad cook, but there is if you don't love cooking and if you don't love eating, because you can never be a great cook if you don't don't enjoy eating. Facts. I, I, I asked someone else that recently, whether... They've ever met like a very high end, like Michelin starred chef who just wasn't really passionate about food, and the answer was yes, Mm -hmm. because you can be technical and you can get to that level, but it will always be missing something because you don't actually care. Yeah. But can we liken that to driving, Zena? I think that's quite. weird Is that is that weird weird analogy? Is that (laughs) okay? Do do you you only ever be great at driving if you love driving? (laughs) I think think so. Do you think so? (laughs) I would say I am an excellent driver. But do you hate it? (laughs) I mean, (laughs) (laughs) I get very passionate when I'm driving. (laughs) Okay, fine. I'm with you.
1: I think great drivers do. So I'm going to put us in that category. Okay, yes, I think that's
0: true. (laughs) How many times did it take you to pass your driving test?
1: First time.
0: Oh, I would say... (laughs) that actually the worst drivers are the ones who pass first time. Because if you think about it, you kind of had the least number of lessons. Whereas it took me five goes to pass. That is a lot of lessons. That is also a lot of times. Right. And um, I think that really stood me in good stead.
1: So one of my really close friends also took five times to pass a test. (laughs) And to this day, people don't get in the cold. (laughs) Because they're like...
0: If it took you that long, well, I yeah. think by the fifth time they were like, okay, we feel bad. We, it, feel bad. we feel bad for her. Let, <laughs> let's
1: just like give her the license. Yeah, I
0: think actually the my final test when I passed was definitely the worst one I'd done. But I, I think the instructor was just like, there oh you go. my goodness, this girl, like we can't. This is embarrassing now. <laughs> Have you ever had any cooking disasters? So many. Because it's I've part had... of the process. It's part of the process. But I think people are a bit scared of cooking in that sense. And if they have a disaster, it can kind of put them off. But I think it's comforting to know that really great cook. It, it is just part of it. And even yeah. now, not everything will go to plan. No,
1: and there that's are, okay. And that's okay. There are two like I like to think of myself as like a pretty good cook. Mm. Hopefully it's my job. Yeah. But there are two dishes that like when I make it could go either way. The okay. first is fried chicken. My fried chicken is not great oh. i don't know why i've been trying to perfect like a fried chicken recipe to put out on the internet for mm. four years now oh still not out because okay. it's <laughs> it's good but it's not great mm. and then the second is tiramisu i make both the world's yeah. best and i know you're triggered <laughs> and i feel like you mentioned fact, that on purpose i did i did <laughs> please 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 tell us what happened when you made a tiramisu
0: yeah. exactly. i don't want to talk about it <laughs> This is about you and your disasters, so tell we us. We can share in our disaster.
1: <laughs> my tiramisu is either the best thing in the world or the worst. Mm. Like, when it goes to plan, I make an excellent tiramisu. And then sometimes it's just like, if I'm trying to do too much, or if mm. I'm under pressure, either I will over whip the mascarpone mix and then I have to start again because it starts to, like, curdle and, like, get into, like, butter slash buttermilk territory. Mm, yeah. Or, like, for whatever reason, I will have, like, over-soaked my biscuit. Whatever it is, sometimes it just doesn't, and I have to start from scratch
0: and it's a whole thing. But yeah, I know you can relate. And I can can heavily relate. And now we'll move on. (laughs) Zena, the fifth desert island dish. What's the dish
1: you eat the most often? Uh, The dish I eat the most often is probably a dal. Like in Mm -hmm. the colder months, I make dal at least once a week. Some Mm -hmm. kind of dal. Whether it's like a sort of tarka, which I say wrong, I know. But I don't know how to pronounce that sort of phonetically. Uh, Or like a sort of coconutty one. Like I have dal a lot. And then closely followed by salmon. I feel like I'm always... Mm. Just like a piece of roast salmon is just like an easy thing to do. Because as much as I spend so much time cooking for content, when I'm just sort of cooking for dinner or something simple, I just like put a piece of salmon in
0: the air fryer and like Mm. call it a day. Because I was going to ask that. So I think you film three days out of the week. Mm -hmm. And on those days, you're obviously producing a lot of food. Do you then get to the end of that day and then cook yourself supper? Or are you eating what you've cooked? Because sometimes if I've been... Whether it's for a catering job or whether it's for online content, sometimes I can't look at the food. So yeah, what cooking. what is that? I don't know. So it's I, repulsive. I'm the same. I'm
1: like I can have it the next day as my leftovers. Mm. So like once I've like a degree of separation between me and the food, mm. fine. Also, I think because I eat as I go, I'm yeah. actually not that hungry by the end of it. So I'll yeah. have something really small. I always have some kind of frozen dumpling, either homemade or from like um, I think it's Ajimonoto. I can't. It's a Japanese brand. They're great. Um, And chicken tenders, because I'm a 30-year-old woman that still eats chicken tenders. As in like breadcrumbed ones? Like breadcrumb, Yeah, Mm. like frozen
0: ones. Yeah. So I'll have like that and peas and call it a day. Yeah. I think that's very common. Like if you speak to any restaurant chef, Mm. they come home and they're having a microwave meal Mm. or a takeaway. Have you seen Boiling Point? No. Oh, such a good film. And yeah, they're working in this amazing restaurant, creating this beautiful food, and they literally go home and have a really sad looking microwave (laughs) meal because that's just all you have left in you. Yeah, You've said that when you're creating recipes, the most important thing that you think about is texture and that you think that's the difference between a good plate of food and a really great plate of food. Talk to me about that.
1: So I was trying to explain this to someone the other day. When you eat something and like, it's all the same texture, shepherd's pie, I (laughs) was like shepherd's pie. Yeah it's all kind of soft. It's all kind of mushy. And mm. therefore, as you're eating, it's tasty at first, but like, there's no other sort of level of excitement that comes. Yeah. Whereas if you have a dish that's like, it's got some soft elements some crunchy, every bite is kind of like a new experience. And I mm. feel like it keeps you like, interested, interested. Mm. Um, so that's what I mean, like, I can do a whole plate of like, just pasta and sauce, like it doesn't have to have texture. But if it can, I think it makes it a little bit more exciting. Mm.
0: So it can often be about the finishing touches, like yeah. adding something. Yeah, just something
1: really simple like sesame seeds, sunflower seeds, whatever it is, just anything breadcrumbs or even like it doesn't have to be crispy. It can be like a crunch, like a pickle or mm. like just something to
0: break up whatever the dominant sort of theme in that yeah. dish is. What well, they've done like studies and it and it is it's not just about texture, but it's just about contrast, isn't it? Because that keeps you excited. And they have actually done studies where I think it was specifically they did it with pastries. Mm -hmm. They'd give someone a pastry They'd rate it out of 10 and then they give them the exact same pastry, but pretend it was different, but in a paper bag. Okay. And the rustle of the paper bag mm-hmm. made that pastry taste a million times better. So interesting. It's really interesting. But it just shows there are so many different elements at play when you're mm-hmm. eating, which I guess is what Heston built his whole career off. With, yep. You know, being blindfolded as you're eating and how that affects the way that you yep. taste. It's it's very interesting. <laughs> Creating these recipes online, have you ever been surprised by what food people respond to the best?
1: I'm consistently surprised by, well, not, not, not in as much as like what people relate to. I think there's a mistake, I think, in sort of correlating dishes that or posts that go viral with like that's your best food or what people mm. relate to more. I think there's like two levels to it. There's the algorithm doing its thing and just pushing out to more people and therefore more people are seeing it. Mm. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's the best that you've put out. Like there are recipes that I've put out that I'm like, this is the best thing in the world. And it hasn't become popular, but that's purely because social media didn't sort of give it that airtime. Yeah. So it's like trying to find the balance between that. But then there's also, you know, something's going viral for a reason. So there's mm. obviously something there. Um, so some things that are really popular make sense to me. So like recently, I I, I did a, a gotchujang butter onion thing that's been yes, doing really well. That. that made sense to me because I thought the video was good, but also it was really simple. It was four ingredients, ingredients you probably have at home, mm. fine. But then if I look at another dish that did really well for me was I did like a taco roasted cauliflower that was delicious but so many elements, so many ingredients. Like Mm. when you think about it, like it really shouldn't have sort of popped off the way that it would because not only did it have a long ingredient list, it had ingredients that you traditionally wouldn't have in your kitchen, um, but somehow that worked. So I don't Mm. know what
0: exactly it is sometimes, Mm. but um, sometimes it makes sense. And then other times you're like, I've seen a really big, as in very successful food creator in America say that she was consistently getting a lot of views and doing really well and her audience was growing. But then she jumped on one of the viral trends and everything exploded. And obviously that was good because she got more followers, but she actually found that really hard to reconcile because that's not what she wanted to be known for. And it's a fine line, isn't it, between creating things that you think people are going to like, obviously, because that's why you're doing it. But that versus something going viral and, I guess ultimately you always have to be able to defend every recipe that you put out and be passionate about it yourself. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. Getting famous for the wrong thing is, I don't know, kind of confusing in your own mind, maybe.
1: Yeah. It also then pigeonholes you in a way Mm. that you might not want to be, because if you go viral for something that like isn't, sort of natural to what you make or how you cook yeah there is then an expectation to continue doing that to retain that audience yeah and so do you quote unquote sell out to yourself and do that yeah. and make not sell out but make food that you're not really passionate about um and keep the algorithm happy and keep growing or do you do what you love but then suddenly you have this like spike and that that's not what they're there for. They're mm. there for this very specific thing. So yeah. I think I have friends who that's happened to and it's it's tricky. Like yeah. you want your work to be recognized. There's nothing wrong with that. But when it you get recognized for stuff that's actually your not yours but comes from you know some creative part in you that you're really mm. proud of then like that's the ideal yeah that's spot to be the best
0: feeling. Mm. Have you ever made something that's really incredibly delicious but it just doesn't come across like that on the video. And you just wish if you could serve all of these people this dish, they would think it was the best thing they'd ever tasted. But- it just doesn't come across like that all the time. <laughs> it's very frustrating. And I think it's
1: now to the point where like when I recipe, I like come up with recipe ideas. It's I I'm thinking because my main sort of medium is video. Mm. So I, I don't I, I don't bother wasting time on stuff that I know won't look good. I may have okay. the best recipes, but I might save that for a newsletter or for mm. a magazine or whatever it might be. It just makes no sense for me to put so much effort into something that I know just is gonna flop and it's not because it's bad but it's because not everything is meant for every platform every media every stream and that's okay it's just recognizing what works with whatever it is that you're doing at the time um, and using your
0: energies wisely yeah i think that's a good motto that's okay (laughs) that's okay (laughs) the sixth desert island dish zena what's your go-to dinner party dish
1: so my go-to dinner party dish has to be my pork and prawn wontons. Mm. They're really good. And then I make them with a homemade chili crisp because I'm kind of obsessed with like homemade chili oils. Yeah. And so do you get to throw many dinner parties? I do. I do a lot of dinner parties recently a lot. Like last week I did three, which was oh. not planned. That okay. was a heavy dinner party week. But no, I, li- I like hosting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's fun. And do you often do a pudding? I always do a pudding. However, (laughs) I feel like my strengths in the food world lie in the savory. So really and truly, I have two desserts. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And it's tiramisu, which goes either really great or not great, or it's baklava. That's it.
0: Yeah. Well, those are two great ones. They're very good. Mm. On Desert Island Dishes, we have a cookbook corner. So I'd love to know, what is your most treasured cookbook?
1: So I need to preface my answer in saying that controversially given sort of what I've been doing with my life, I'm not a big cookbook user. And it's not that I don't love cookbooks. I think because I'm constantly having to create content, it, mm. I, I don't get as much time to consume it as I'd like. So that's my sort of context. But my favorite cookbook recently is Mescla by oh, yeah. Easter Belfridge. Mm. That woman and the way she pairs flavors, it's I actually don't have the words. Her, her, I need to try
0: the prawn lasagna. The prawn
1: lasagna is one of the best things I've ever eaten. Okay, I like need it's to try it. so good. So yeah, that okay. is my excellent
0: top choice. Susanna, so I can't believe it, but we're on to the final seventh desert island dish. What is the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island? I should also say at this point, you are allowed several courses.
1: Ah, okay. Well, I thought it was just the one, and when I did think it was the one, it's just one. Big giant plate of McDonald's chips. Oh. Just just <laughs> chips. Skinny salt mm. ketchup. Perfection.
0: Perfection. Like <laughs> that isn't what I expected you to say, I have to admit. <laughs>
1: to be fair, I it's it's rogue, but I'm also the type of person, like I just I think chips are single-handedly one of the best foods in the world. Like a mm. good skinny fry that's perfectly salty and crispy is just like a beautiful
0: thing. Yeah. And McDonald's, are they the best you've come across? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, no, <laughs> but they're my favorite. Okay, I like, you yes. know how when you have something that you know is not objectively the best, but you love it anyway. Mm. Same with I the say McDonald's. They're pretty
0: close to being the best. I mean, they're actually pretty soggy, but I don't mind that. Because you know soggy how, like, if, you delivery, if you get a delivery, but if you get fresh, you know fair. the good ones. I actually don't know the last time I was in a physical McDonald's. Oh well, that's why you think that's. That's why though. I think that's soggy.
1: <laughs> And you know what, now that I know that I can have anything that I want mm, That's still I'm, your answer <laughs> That plus the lamb From when I was yeah. 14 years old And the side of egg fried rice, that's it Okay, are you
0: going to finish with a pudding?
1: Uh, I'm not a sweets girl So I, I serve pudding at my dinner parties So I feel like I have to But if I didn't have to, I wouldn't oh. I'd just end on like coffee or cheese Okay, I'm a savoury
0: girl Okay, yeah. so just extras of all the main course Yeah, like three plates of chips <laughs> <laughs> Zena, with that, we're going to cast you (laughs) off to the island. Thank you so much, Zena. Thank you. So there we have it. Another delicious day of Desert Island Dishes. Don't forget that you can rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. It really does make a difference because that boosts the show in the charts and then it tells other people that it's a good show and means that more people listen and that means that I can keep bringing it to you each week. If you don't already, then come and follow me on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes. And you can also sign up for the newsletter and find a whole host of different recipes at DesertIslandDishes.co. A huge thank you to my producer, Georgie, who helps me so much with keeping this all running smoothly and has to listen to hours of my voice in her ears. Thank you so much, Georgie. You're the best. Thank you for listening and I'll see you next week. Bye.